Reginald in Russia by Saki Read by Richard Crowest The Soul of Laploshka Laploshka was one of the meanest men I have ever met and quite one of the most entertaining. He said horrid things about other people in such a charming way that one forgave him for the equally horrid things he said about oneself behind one's back. Hating anything in the way of ill-natured gossip ourselves, we are always grateful to those who do it for us and do it well. And Laploshka did it really well. Naturally, Laploshka had a large circle of acquaintances, and, as he exercised some care in their selection, it followed that an appreciable proportion were men whose bank balances enabled them to acquiesce indulgently in his rather one-sided views on hospitality. Thus, although possessed of only moderate means, he was able to live comfortably within his income, and still more comfortably within those of various tolerantly disposed associates. But towards the poor, or those of the same limited resources as himself, his attitude was one of watchful anxiety. He seemed to be haunted by a besetting fear lest some fraction of a shilling or franc, or whatever the prevailing coinage might be, should be diverted from his pocket or service into that of a hard-up companion. A two-franc cigar would be cheerfully offered to a wealthy patron, on the principle of doing evil that good may come, but I have known him indulge in agonies of perjury rather than admit the incriminating possession of a copper coin when change was needed to tip a waiter. The coin would have been duly returned at the earliest opportunity. He would have taken means to ensure against forgetfulness on the part of the borrower, but accidents might happen— and even the temporary estrangement from his penny or sou was a calamity to be avoided. The knowledge of this amiable weakness offered a perpetual temptation to play upon Laploshka's fears of involuntary generosity. To offer him a lift in a cab and pretend not to have enough money to pay the fare, to fluster him with a request for a sixpence when his hand was full of silver just received in change— these were a few of the petty torments that ingenuity prompted as occasion afforded. To do justice to Laploshka's resourcefulness, it must be admitted that he always emerged somehow or other from the most embarrassing dilemma without in any way compromising his reputation for saying no. But the gods send opportunities at some time to most men, and mine came one evening when Laploshka and I were supping together in a cheap boulevard restaurant, Except when he was the bidden guest of someone with an irreproachable income, Laploshka was wont to curb his appetite for high living. On such fortunate occasions he let it go on an easy snaffle. At the conclusion of the meal a somewhat urgent message called me away, and without heeding my companion's agitated protest I called back cruelly, "'Pay my share, I'll settle with you tomorrow.' Early on the morrow, Laploshka hunted me down by instinct as I walked along a side street that I hardly ever frequented. He had the air of a man who had not slept. "'You owe me two francs from last night,' was his breathless greeting. I spoke evasively of the situation in Portugal, where more trouble seemed brewing. But Laploshka listened with the abstraction of the deaf adder, and quickly returned to the subject of the two francs. "'I'm afraid I must owe it to you,' I said lightly and brutally. 
I haven't a sou in the world. And I added mendaciously, I'm going away for six months, or perhaps longer. Laploshka said nothing, but his eyes bulged a little, and his cheeks took on the mottled hues of an ethnographical map of the Balkan Peninsula. That same day, at sundown, he died. Failure of the heart's action was the doctor's verdict, but I, who knew better, knew that he had died of grief. There arose the problem of what to do with his two francs. To have killed Laploshka was one thing, to have kept his beloved money would have argued a callousness of feeling of which I am not capable. The ordinary solution of giving it to the poor would by no means fit the present situation, for nothing would have distressed the dead man more than such a misuse of his property. On the other hand, the bestowal of two francs on the rich was an operation which called for some tact. An easy way out of the difficulty seemed, however, to present itself the following Sunday, as I was wedged into the cosmopolitan crowd which filled the side aisle of one of the most popular Paris churches. A collecting bag for the poor of Monsieur le Curé was buffeting its tortuous way across the seemingly impenetrable human sea, and a German in front of me, who evidently did not wish his appreciation of the magnificent music to be marred by a suggestion of payment, made audible criticisms to his companion on the claims of the said charity. "'They do not want money,' he said. "'They have too much money. They have no poor. They are all pampered.' If that were really the case, my way seemed clear. I dropped Laploshka's two francs into the bag with a murmured blessing on the rich of Monsieur le Curé. Some three weeks later, chance had taken me to Vienna, and I sat one evening regaling myself in a humble but excellent little gasthouse up in the Veringer quarter. The appointments were primitive, but the schnitzel, the beer and the cheese could not have been improved on. Good cheer brought good custom, and with the exception of one small table near the door, every place was occupied. Halfway through my meal I happened to glance in the direction of that empty seat, and saw that it was no longer empty. Poring over the bill of fare with the absorbed scrutiny of one who seeks the cheapest among the cheap was Laploshka. Once he looked across at me with a comprehensive glance at my repast, as though to say, "'It is my two francs you are eating,' and then looked swiftly away. Evidently the poor of Monsieur le Curé had been genuine poor. The schnitzel turned to leather in my mouth, the beer seemed tepid, I left the Emmentaler untasted. My one idea was to get away from the room, away from the table where that was seated, and as I fled I felt Laploshka's reproachful eyes watching the amount that I gave to the piccolo, out of his two francs. I lunched next day at an expensive restaurant, which I felt sure that the living Laploshka would never have entered on his own account, and I hoped that the dead Laploshka would observe the same barriers. I was not mistaken— but as I came out I found him miserably studying the bill of fare stuck up on the portals. Then he slowly made his way over to a milk hall. For the first time in my experience I missed the charm and gaiety of Vienna life. After that, in Paris or London or wherever I happened to be, I continued to see a good deal of Laploshka. 
If I had a seat in a box at a theatre, I was always conscious of his eyes furtively watching me from the dim recesses of the gallery. As I turned into my club on a rainy afternoon, I would see him taking inadequate shelter in a doorway opposite. Even if I indulged in the modest luxury of a penny chair in the park, he generally confronted me from one of the free benches, never staring at me, but always elaborately conscious of my presence. My friends began to comment on my changed looks and advised me to leave off heaps of things. I should have liked to have left off La Ploschka. On a certain Sunday, it was probably Easter, for the crush was worse than ever, I was again wedged into the crowd listening to the music in the fashionable Paris church, and again the collection bag was buffeting its way across the human sea. An English lady behind me was making ineffectual efforts to convey a coin into the still distant bag, so I took the money at her request and helped it forward to its destination. It was a two-franc piece. A swift inspiration came to me, and I merely dropped my own sou into the bag and slid the silver coin into my pocket. I had withdrawn La Ploschka's two francs from the poor who should never have had that legacy. As I backed away from the crowd, I heard a woman's voice say, I don't believe he put my money in the bag. There are swarms of people in Paris like that. But my mind was lighter than it had been for a long time. The delicate mission of bestowing the retrieved sum on the deserving rich still confronted me. Again I trusted to the inspiration of accident, and again fortune favoured me. A shower drove me two days later into one of the historic churches on the left bank of the Seine, and there I found, peering at the old wood carvings, the Baron R., one of the wealthiest and most shabbily dressed men in Paris. It was now or never. Putting a strong American inflection into the French which I usually talked with an unmistakable British accent, I catechised the Baron as to the date of the church's building, its dimensions, and other details which an American tourist would be certain to want to know. Having acquired such information as the Baron was able to impart on short notice, I solemnly placed the two-franc piece in his hand with the hearty assurance that it was pour vous, and turned to go. The Baron was slightly taken aback, but he accepted the situation with a good grace. Walking over to a small box fixed in the wall, he dropped Laploschka's two francs into the slot. Over the box was the inscription, Pour les pauvres de Monsieur le Curé. That evening, at the crowded corner by the Café de la Paix, I caught a fleeting glimpse of Laploschka. He smiled slightly raised his hat and vanished. I never saw him again. After all, the money had been given to the deserving rich and the soul of La Ploschka was at peace. Mm -hmm.